we can turn our uh, Bibles over to Romans, Romans chapter 5. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we turn our hearts to God's Word. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that we have a personal copy of the inerrant uh, word of God, that uh, you've entrusted us with this, and, and Lord, help us never to take that for granted. I pray that we would be willing to study it, to open our hearts, our minds to the truth that we find in it. And Lord, not only that we would learn the facts of the Word of God, but that those facts would apply to our own lives and that they would change us in the way that we act. And Lord, we uh, thank you that you have given us the power of the Holy Spirit that resides within us to understand these truths. And I pray that you would also use the power of the Spirit to apply them to our hearts. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue in our study in Romans chapter 5, we're talking about the results of righteousness. And um, Augustine was trying to figure out why people always continue to seek after things. Um, And he wrote this. Uh, about not having that ability to be at rest, to be at peace. He said, you have made for yourself, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And Pascal had a similar thought. He commented, he he talked about a God-shaped vacuum inside each man. And when we try to fill that vacuum with things of the world, whether it's money, power, sex, whatever it might be, um, the result really is what you might call spiritual indigestion. Um, And today I think in churches our tummies are full, but our hearts are empty. Uh, And we have to ask ourselves, where can we go to find things we want more than anything else in the world. And my argument is that you have to go to the Word of God. You have to come to God. Because it's that truth that we seek. Now, when we look at Romans, we've been in this book for a year now, and last year we journeyed chapters 1 through 4, and we saw a lot of the bad news about our helpless, hopeless, lost state in sin apart from any righteousness that could save us. There was a Scottish poet named Bonar who wrote this to him. It's the sin bearer. It says, Thy bonds, not mine, O Christ, Unbind me from my chain and break my prison doors, ne'er to be barred again. Thy righteousness, O Christ, alone can cover me. No righteousness avails save that which is of thee. Thy righteousness alone can clothe and beautify. I wrap it round my soul. In this I'll live and die. The one thing that we've been talking about in Romans 1 through 4 is all the bad news. And I remember when we started Romans, I said, you know, you have to hang in there. 
Um, eventually, we're going to get some good news. Eventually, we're going to see that bad news that we're lost in our sin replaced with a hope, a hope that can only come from God. And that hope begins here in chapter 5. And so you might ask, well, why are we spending so much time in the book of Romans? And, uh, you know, there's, there's several other books in the Bible, Pastor, if you haven't realized that. Uh, the answer isn't hard to find. I think Romans is arguably the greatest book in the Bible. Uh, if a person could complete, have complete knowledge of only one book, uh, they would do much worse than to focus on Romans. Uh, and I think there's a couple reasons for that. It's the clearest diagnosis of the sinful condition of mankind. We see it there. We've studied that. It tells it the way it is. It's also the greatest statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Over and over and over again, Paul harps on the gospel of Christ. And thirdly, it's the most profound description of the Christian life. And so for that reason, it's almost like a Christian, you might say, manifesto. Paul packed so much into these 16 chapters. I think we could probably spend several, several, several years here and still have only scratched the surface. And it's true that everything in the Bible was written for our prophet. I don't think any other book in the Bible contains so much truth, but in such a compact form. And so... We're looking at Romans, and we've, we've entitled the message, The Result of Righteousness, and that righteousness doesn't come of our, ourselves. It comes because we've been justified as believers by the Lord Jesus Christ before a holy God. And just reminder here, uh, he starts off there in verse 1, therefore, and he gives us a, a reminder of why we've been justified. And we talked about this last week, that justification is definite. It's something that's a sure thing for those who have trusted in Christ. It's also settled, and that means it's unrepeatable. You can't get saved over and over and over again. Once you're justified before God, you're justified. And then thirdly, we talked about it being distinct, that only God is the one who can justify us, and that's why, fourthly, justification is all of grace. Uh, The three points we looked at last week was justification by faith, It's the only way to have justification. Gives us peace with God, first of all. You see that in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It also gives us access to uh, our standing in riches of God's grace before him. It says in verse 2, through him, through who? Through Christ Christ. We have obtained access by faith. You know, in the Old Testament, they used to have the Holy of Holies, and the priest would go in and make a sacrifice. No one else could go in there. They'd actually put a little bell on their ankle, tie a rope to them even, in case something happened in there. They dare not go in and retrieve the priest. They'd just pull him out. As long as they heard the bell still ringing, they knew things were okay so far. And, you know, we've seen in the Old Testament the kind of, inaccess that people had, the inability to march right before God. And that's not what we're about today. Through Christ, we have total access to God the Father. And he's the one mediator that you have to go through. And then thirdly, we looked at 
justification by faith gives us this joyous confidence that we will share in his glory. And he says that there at the end of verse 2. He says, into this grace into which we stand, and has the idea of standing there firmly, you're not wavering back and forth, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This isn't the kind of hope that, hey, I hope Seattle wins today, or I hope this, no. It's the kind of hope that's a sure thing. All right, it's a sure thing. It's a hope that stands upon the promises of God. And the fact that we will share his glory is just an incredible thing. Whereas before, it was something that was so untouchable. Moses couldn't even look at the glory of God. He could only see the backside. And even then, he's shown for days afterwards. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to actually par- not just be in the glory of God, but actually partake of his glory? We'll share through Christ. Well, we come to our section this morning, and I'll read this, verses 1 through 5, just so we have it all in context. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace into which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then our text for this morning, verse 3. More than that, that's not all. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I never like, suff- or I never like uh, preaching on suffering, because you know that those kind of messages are kind of like a boomerang. You know, you throw it out there and it comes right back and hits you in the side of the head, uh, which is the way it should be, by the way. Um, you aim at the congregation, but it hits you first. Um, I mean, who wants to go through the idea of exalting in suffering or trials? Um, in that instance, I'd rather not practice what I preach, to be honest with you. No one likes to go through suffering. No one likes trials. No one likes tribulations. But they're a part of this fallen world in which we live in. And so we need to learn what God's word tells us about how to handle them. The problem is simply this. The way the Bible tells us to handle suffering, the way the Bible tells us to handle trials and tribulations... I don't know about you, but I look at it, and I just say, this is plain nuts. It's crazy. It's like a crazy man talking. And I'll show you what I mean. Um, Paul says that he exalts in his tribulations. Maybe we could explain him away. Maybe he just got a little carried away in his teaching. And he says that over and over. But then again, when you look at the words of Christ, if you turn over to Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11, or Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, you look at what Christ tells us, Matthew chapter 5, 11 and 12. He says, blessed are you when others revile you. means to insult you. You ever been insulted? 
Have you ever been blessed? The word has the idea of being happy. It's kind of what it means. Happy are you when people insult you. What? What are you saying, Jesus? And not only that, they don't only just, you know, call you a name or two, but they actually persecute you. And they say all kinds of false things about evil against you. What's Jesus say there? He says, rejoice, be glad, for your reward in heaven will be great. That doesn't make any sense. I don't know about you, but if someone insults me, usually I end up hurling an insult back. At least, maybe not by word, I do it in my mind. It's like my little granddaughter, Gabby. I told you this before. She was getting in trouble for saying some things and doing some things. And so they talked to her about repentance and confession and what that means. And she kind of went overboard with this whole concept. And she ended up coming to her brothers and sisters and their parents at times saying, I'm sorry, Mom, what would you do? Well, I didn't really do anything, but in my mind, I was thinking a lot of bad things. I called my brother this name. I did this. And this. I didn't do it, but in my mind, I did. See, that's, that's what happens. You know, sometimes we put on a nice little smile and say, well, you know, go your way. God bless you. I'll just avoid you in the future. But in our hearts, we're reacting in a whole different way that's not spirit-filled at all. But it's not just Paul. It's not just Jesus who tells us this. James chapter 1 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The idea here, James is saying, when you encounter not just some trials, but when you encounter those trials that are cage-rattling trials, life-rattling trials. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. It's like sufferings and rejoicings. They're just like linked at the hip when it comes to Scripture. He goes on, he says, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. When you look to the book of Acts, you see this lived out by the apostles. You see how they actually practice this strange teaching of responding to trials. If you look in Acts chapter 5 verse 41, when the Jewish Sanhedrin just flogged some of the uh, apostles, being flogged was not a fun thing. Okay, you were in a lot of pain, you were injured, your body was physically hurt. It says in Acts 5.41, so they went on their way from the presence of the council. What's it say? Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Even Paul and Silas, when they were in prison, after they were illegally beaten, they were imprisoned. They were fastened to stocks in Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, verse 25, it says, But about midnight, after being beaten and imprisoned, I don't think you could sleep anyway. And that's what their case was. They couldn't sleep. It says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and what? Singing hymns of praise to God. You know, I think of somebody like 
Saeed Abedini, the pastor in prison. And I'm thinking, how long, Lord? How long is this going to drag out? How long? I mean, I used to get really, really uh, irritated at our government. And I was watching Fox News every time they'd have something about Iran or, or they would have something about uh, Pastor Abedini. I'd be tuning in and, you know, and I'm thinking, what does it hurt the president to say something? What does it hurt John Kerry to go over there and say, yeah, we'll talk to you, but let this guy go? I mean, how is that a hard thing? He's an he's a American citizen, for goodness sake, and he hadn't done anything wrong. And you get real frustrated. And then I began to realize, after doing some of these studies, I thought, you know what? Pastor Saeed Abedini is exactly where God wants him to be at this time. As hard as it is on his family, as hard as it is on his children, as hard as it is on himself. There's not a day that goes by that when he's imprisoned, unjustly, suffering for the sake of Christ, God's aware of that, and he has him there for a purpose. He has him there because it's part of his plan. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10 Paul told the Corinthians, most, most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that, my, so that the power of Christ may dwell in, in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. Also, the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 34, says, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of the property, of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So you can't escape, when you look into Scripture, this strange response of exalting in tribulation, exalting in trials, exalting in suffering. It's, it's uniform throughout the New Testament. But I don't know about you, but that's not my standard response when I'm called upon to suffer. It's just not. My default is usually to grumble or to gripe. Um, we grit our teeth, kind of put a pasty little smile on our face and say, yeah, I'm suffering for Jesus. Uh, you know, a few may be able to say that you're usually rejoicing in spite of your trials. But how many of us can honestly say that we're exalting in our trials? So there's something here. And so Paul, here in chapter 5, verse 3, he begins to talk about the peace that we can have with God through Christ. That we have access to God through His grace. We have hope of the glory. And then he says, that's not all. There's more. More than that. More than all those things. And how great are those things? It's, it's amazing. He says, more than that, or not only that, he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. So Paul is, is really, he's showing us why God brings trials into the lives of his saints. It's because through the trials we grow in endurance, we grow in proven character, we grow in hope. 
And the scriptures tell us our hope will not disappoint because even now God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Mentions the Trinity there. We have peace with God through whom? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has given us as a deposit the Holy Spirit. So we can exalt in trials and sufferings if we develop God's perspective and keep in mind that trials do not nullify his great love for us. Now, you can only imagine some of the people that Paul's talking to, they're finally getting a grasp of this grace thing and justice and uh, just being justified and righteousness and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, he starts to tell them about suffering. And he probably has to explain himself, and that's what he does. So the first point in our outline this morning, to exalt in trials or suffering, develop and maintain God's perspective. He's using trials to shape our character and prepare us for heaven. I like those little words there. In some translations, it says in verse uh, 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. We know that suffering produces endurance. Do you know that this morning? You may know it in your head. Do you know it in your life? Um. Hope is not going to disappoint us. But those two words, we know, are so important. Because you know what? In life, there's a lot of things we don't know. But what Paul is telling us here in Romans is there's one thing that we do know. That suffering produces these several things that he lists here. But think of the things we don't know. We don't know why the cancer hits one person and not another. We don't know why the brakes failed at the intersection, we got in a wreck. We don't know why the money didn't come in. We don't know why our child struggles, and yet another one simply excels. We don't know why the fire struck our house, or even more. You see some of the video sometimes of these tornadoes. One side of the street totally gone gone. Everything gone. The next side of the street, the other side of the street, nothing's even touched. Just amazing. Why does that happen? There's so many things we don't know. In fact, there's more we don't know, really, than we do know. But we do know this one thing, that all things work together for good. That's Romans 8.28. But how do these things work together for good? That's part of our answer here in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 4. The sufferings of life work together for good because they promote our spiritual growth. They help us grow. For the most part, trials are merely something we look at to be endured. We grit our teeth, we grin, we bear it, and we say, okay, you know, I'll get through this. And Paul says, no, that's not the attitude that we should have. We should actually rejoice in our trials. We should rejoice in these hard times that maybe we're going through with our health or with our finances or with our marriage or with our children because we know that God is working in the hard times to produce something good, something beautiful in us. I mean, to get a handle on what Paul means here and how we can grow in this idea of rejoicing in our suffering. First of all, you have to understand that exalting in trials is not automatic. It's not automatic. 
it requires deliberate focus. When something happens to me in an adverse way, I don't immediately just go, well, praise the Lord. As a matter of fact, usually if that's your response, it's, it's not heartfelt. If exalting in trials were an automatic response, you would see a lot more people rejoicing. <laughs> because none of us are devoid of trials. Instead, what do we usually see? We see multitudes of people complaining about their trials, complaining about their tribulations. And I would even go to venture to say, even among Christians, grumbling about trials is a lot more common than rejoicing or exalting in them. Think of that next time you're caught in a traffic jam while you're driving to work and you're going to be late. Think about that the next time you go to the doctor and you're diagnosed with the C word. It doesn't look good. I mean, think about the children of Israel after the Exodus. God brought them out of slavery into Egypt by inflicting the plagues on the Egyptians, and then he he, he parted the Red Sea. I saw the movie The Exodus. It was lacking in biblical correctness, but it was entertaining. Um, So they could escape from Pharaoh's army. And they were drowned, the Bible says. They didn't survive like the, the, uh, the movie <laughs> Israel celebrated God's miraculous salvation. What they do with singing and dancing, that's what they, they, we see. And we read that they went three days in the wilderness, and what they, they ran out of water. All they could find was bitter water. Now, did they rejoice and say, wow, let's see how God's going to provide for us now. I mean, he did this great miracle. I'm sure he's not just bringing us out here in the desert to let us die. No, Exodus chapter 15, verse 24 says, so the people grumbled at Moses. Hey, great, you brought us through the Red Sea. All this stuff happened. That's super. God's great. What are we going to drink, pal? They were upset. The Lord told Moses how to make water drinkable. But in the very next chapter, we read that the whole congregation begins to grumble again. Saying, oh, we should have just stayed in Egypt. As hard as it was, we'd be better off there. At least we had something to eat. Exodus 16. So what did God do? He provides manna for them. Incredible. Just a miraculous provision. But as they traveled across the desert, in spite of God's miraculous provision for them, what happens? They end up grumbling again. More manna? We got to eat more manna? Manna is kind of like spam in Hawaii. Everything in Hawaii has spam. I mean, at McDonald's, there's spam on the menu. It's the weirdest thing. My little granddaughter eats something. It's spam with like seaweed wrapped around it. It's like, oh. Well, here they are. They're eating the same thing from God, and they begin to grumble again. Their history for over 40 years was constant complaining in spite of God graciously providing for them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul actually uses his, this, this trial that they went through as a warning to us. 
1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. And he said, he's talking about the uh, verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6 says, Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not consider evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drank and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor, look at verse 10, grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So God had a purpose even in their suffering. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul exhorts us to follow the example he set when he was accused falsely, when he was beaten, when he was wrongly imprisoned. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. I mean, that's what the truth of the matter is. We're lights in the world. And a lot of times the world around us is grumbling. It's grumbling about everything. And if we aren't grumbling, but we're cheerful even when we're facing trials, whether there's minor irritations at work or major trials in our personal lives, we're going to shine as lights in the darkness because it's so different. If you've ever gone to shop for jewelry, you go in and they put the diamond on what? What color do they put the diamond on? Black, right? So it shines, so you can see the difference. There's a contrast there. But it doesn't happen automatically. It requires deliberate focus. Secondly, exalting in trials doesn't mean that we deny the pain. The Bible does not encourage us to deny reality. This isn't Joel Olstein's my best whatever now. You know, that's not what he's talking about. It's not name it and claim it. You know, you hear these guys on TV, you just need to speak wealth into your wallet. Well, pal, I've tried it. It don't work. Maybe you can give me some of your money, you know. I mean, that's what I want to write and ask them as they fly around in their Lear jets from town to town. You know, it doesn't mean that we, when we're exalting in trials, that we're denying the pain. It doesn't mean we just put on a happy face and pretend everything's fine as we're praising the Lord. Romans chapter 12, verse 5, says this, Weep with those who what? Who weep. He doesn't say exhort those who are weeping to stop weeping and exalting in their trials. He doesn't say that. Remember one time I did a funeral and someone came up to the widow afterwards. And the brother, I mean, he was a, he was a believer, the brother that passed on. And I remember this person 
telling this widow who had just lost her husband of so many years. Well, praise the Lord. He's in glory now. Big grin on his face. And I thought, man, I just want to, you know, slap that grin right off his face. Because I thought, you know what? That's the last thing, really, that widow needed to hear. She was grieving. You know, we need to weep with those who are weeping. Um, There's something about that process. God has created us to go through that process. We all probably do it in a different way, but we need to go through that grieving process. So exalting in trials doesn't mean that you just deny the pain. Paul himself acknowledges this tension in 1 Corinthians 6.10. He says, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. You read that and you go, what? As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. He goes on to describe how his trials, his emotions were all over the chart. But he had comfort in God. Undergirding all those trials was his genuine trust and joy in the Lord. And that's what the Bible instructs us. The author of Hebrews recognizes the same tension in Hebrews 12, 11. All discipline for the moment seems to not be what? Joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who are being trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You know, we probably all heard this when we were little children as we were being um, beaten, or I mean disciplined. You know, this hurts me a lot more than it hurts you. It's like, yeah, I don't think so, but good try. You see the same thing throughout the Psalms. The Psalms in situation where where he despairs at times, even of his own life, of enemies, all these things are trying to kill him. And sometimes he even questions where God is or why God delays. He expresses his anguish. He expresses his pain as he cries out to the Lord. But by the end of the, the problem, by the end of the psalm, even though he's still in grave danger, he's filled with joy. He's filled with praise to God. So there's nothing wrong with feeling Sorrow. There's nothing wrong with feeling pain. There's nothing wrong with grieving in the midst of a, of a difficult trial. You shouldn't just deny those feelings in an attempt to try to look more spiritual. But we should be sustained through our tears, through our hope, or through our pain, by the, the hope that God promises us. Thirdly, exalting in trials is possible when we keep in mind that God is using the trials to shape our what? Our character. After mentioning exalting in his tribulations here, Paul continues in verse 3. He says, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. Once again, you see that, that, that word there. I don't want you to miss it, knowing It's part of a deliberate focus that Paul's having. He's saying, I know this to be true without a shadow of a doubt. I know that God is going to somehow work this situation out. Our mental focus has to include some knowledge about the character of God, about how God is using these trials. I mean, we're not all going to grow at the same pace or in the same way in our Christian walk. But we will only grow if we're willing to submit ourselves joyfully to God because we keep in mind that He is sovereign, we are not, 
and that he is using even trials and sufferings in our life to be more like Christ. It was Job in Job 23.10 where he says this, He knows the way that I take. When he has tired me, I shall come, tried me, I shall come forth as what? Gold. That's the idea. Only an experienced believer can say that. You know, you can't get saved today and say, oh yeah, I know what it means to go through trials. You don't have a clue. You know, you're still trying to save the world. Um, and that's fine. But when you go through cage-rattling trials like James says, and you begin to realize, you know what? God is faithful through those trials. You know, there's several people in our congregation who's gone through those kind of trials. I mean, life-death situations. In 201, I could ask them probably, if I had them come up here and ask them, hey, would you do this differently? They would probably say no. Because I've seen what God has done in my life as a result of this trial. And that testimony only comes from those more mature, older believers that had walked with God and, and he's proven himself faithful to them. When a man reaches the end of his life and he looks back and he can say with conviction, Jesus has led me all the way. That's what's important. His words have meaning because he's gone through heartache. He's gone through disappointment. He's gone through the agony of defeat. But he also knows that God has never forsaken him, not even in the worst moments of his life. Ray Stedman, a wonderful teacher, said it this way. He's with the Lord now. God is in the process of making veterans. He delights to, make, to take raw, untested rookies and put them in the crucible. And when they come out, they aren't raw or untested. And they aren't rookies anymore. They're veterans, men and women of proven character. I mean, write it down, my friends. Suffering lies along the path to spiritual maturity. All the saints of God have discovered that truth. You stop and you think of this. Ask Abraham and he'll point to Mount Moriah. Ask Jacob and he'll point to that stone pillow. Ask Joseph and he'll point to the prison in Egypt. Ask Moses and he'll point to the backside of the desert. Ask Daniel and he'll point to the lion's den. Ask Peter and he'll point to his denials. Ask John and he'll point to Patmos. God's blessings are poured out, someone said, in bitter cups. And you see here this chain of events. It says suffering or tribulation, pressure literally is what it means, brings about perseverance. Brings about endurance, brings about steadfastness. The Greek word here literally means to bear up under. It's the ability to remain in a difficult situation without giving in or giving up. A couple weeks ago, when we were hiking up to this pillbox after being sick for a week and a half, I thought, man, what would my grandson think of me if I don't make it up here? And it just kept me going. I survived, barely, but I made it. Calvin points out that you don't need endurance if you're not feeling sorrowful or distressed. But he adds this, when you regard your trials as dispensed from a kind father for your good, you feel great comfort. 
See, when you know that God is somehow promoting your salvation, you have a reason for the glorying. I mean, if the, if the suffering was for all for naught, then I can understand not glorying in those sufferings or rejoicing in those sufferings. So Paul at this point is, is basically saying you don't develop endurance unless you go through trials, and we all know that to be true. You don't have to endure when everything is going your way. That's why our prayer life usually notches up a couple things on our spiritual belts when all of a sudden we get some bad news or family issues or something hits. All of a sudden, boy, we're spending more time in prayer. But boy, when everything, money's in the bank and everything's going fine and health, well, we're just having a great time as a family. Well, you know, sometimes the prayer kind of slacks off a little bit. Little commercial, we're starting a series on prayer this coming Wednesday based on the book Max Lucado wrote called Before Amen. Read the book on vacation. Wonderful, wonderful uh, little book. It's not big, but we'll just be viewing a DVD and talking about this and going through a little Bible study on Wednesday nights. See, it's not difficult to trust the Lord, is it, when you're experiencing nothing but pure blessings. But will your faith endure when life is hard? Billy Graham tells a story of a friend who went through this incredible series of setbacks. And in the process, he lost his job, his fortune, his family, his future. And the only thing he had left was his faith in God. And one day, as the man was walking through the streets of a major city, he stopped to watch some stone workmen who were repairing this spire on this great cathedral. And his attention was fixed on a stonemason who was just chipping away at this little triangular piece of stone. And at length, he asked the man, what, what are you doing? And the worker motioned upward to the spire, and he said, look all the way to the top. When the man did, he saw a tiny triangular space near the peak of the spire. And the worker said this, I'm shaping this down here so it will fit up there. See, that's what God is doing in our lives. He's shaping us down here so we will fit up there. I mean, painful experiences of life are part of God's shaping program. They're for you. They're for me. He's shaping us for heaven while we're living here on earth. And we can rejoice in that suffering because we know that God is working even through our pain for his glory. Ask yourself this question. Will you trust God and submit to his mighty hand when you lose your job? Or when you're going through a hard time, maybe in your marriage or with your kids, maybe when you're diagnosed with a serious disease. See, our, our text says perseverance produces proven character. That word means something that has passed the test. It comes out approved. Automobile factories have what they call proving grounds. And they take their new automobiles out to these proving grounds and they basically run them into the ground 
They put them through every possible test so that companies like Ford can say Ford trucks are built to last. How do they know that? Because they put them through. They're proven. See, when you go through a trial trusting in God, your faith becomes proven. You've been thoroughly tested, and you've passed the test. You know by experience that you can lean on his faithfulness. He won't let you down. It proves that you're not just a flash-in-the-pan Christian, like the parable of the, the seed on the shallow soil, which quickly faded under the heat of trials. Perseverance works proven character. And then he says that proven character works hope. He almost brings this full circle back to verse 2, talking about hope, where we who have been justified by faith exalt in hope for the glory of God. It's the same hope, but now it's even stronger because it's proven. The initial hope comes from understanding the blessings of being justified by faith. We begin the Christian life full of faith, full of hope. And then we get hit by different trials, difficult trials. We cling to God like we've never clung to Him before, and His faithfulness is proven out in our lives. And that develops proven character, helps us to endure. And we come out of the other side more certain of the hope of eternal glory with Him than we were before we ever went through the trials. Our hope is stronger because it's been tempted tempered by the flames of affliction. And fourthly, exalting in trials requires developing and remembering the hope of heaven. This is hard to do when you live just in the present. You know, it's good once in a while to sit down with your Bible and read about heaven. Read about the place you'll be in one day. It's not some fanciful place that some little kid tells you about in some book. The Bible gives us all we need to know about heaven. And what it doesn't tell us, we don't need to know. We'll experience it firsthand one day if we trust it in Christ as our Lord and Savior. But he talks about this hope. Once all the suffering is done, when it's had its work and we've persevered, tested our character, then finally this hope, the confident expectation that we will not be disappointed. What starts with suffering ends with hope. Suffering actually strengthens our hope when we are responding in a godly fashion. Someone said this, the tears of time may become glistening pearls in the eternal crown. Uh, As God completes his work in us, we become kinder, we become gentler, we become more compassionate, we become less irritable, we become wiser, We become more trustworthy. That's what God wants us to be. And you know what? It's not us doing it. It's him doing it in us. He's keeping his promises to us. Hope does not disappoint. Not in this life or the life to come. Do you know nothing is wasted in the believer's life? There's nothing wasted. Our worst trials are down payments on something wonderful to come. Our hope is not in a trouble-free life, but rather in a glorious, trouble-free eternity. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 14 to 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though the outer man is decaying, all you got to do is look around, 
We're all decaying. Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And somebody like the Apostle Paul who went through so much could maintain his hope not lose heart because he understood it as a momentary light affliction. Why? Because his focus was on eternal hope of heaven. Sometimes critics turn to Christians and they say, oh, that's, you know, just pie in the sky when you die kind of stuff. I heard a pastor answer somebody that said that to him once and he said, Yeah, you're going to die. Would you like pie with that or no pie? (laughs) It's good. You know, we're all going. One day, we won't be here. I'm sure this year, at the end of this next year, we'll look back. Probably, more than likely, some of us will not be here. We'll have passed on to glory. And either you have the hope of heaven because you've trusted Christ... And he's forgiven all your sins. Or, to be honest, you have no hope. Paul says, hope does not disappoint. Does not make us ashamed. It's so important that we realize that. The last point, to exalt in trials, we must keep in mind that trials do not nullify God's great love for us. The reason that hope doesn't disappoint, beloved, is because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he's given to us. Paul's talking here about God's love for us. If you look at verses 6 to 8, you can see that. Uh, He did not see suffering as an indication that God does not love us. That's the, the world, you know. Well, if your God is so loving, then why am I having all these problems? He says there that it's been poured out. It indicates a past action with continuing results. And it points specifically to God's greatest love that we experience when with the moment we're saved. It's something that's completed. It's done. But it continues to kind of pour into our hearts. It affects us. And then he says it was the Holy Spirit that was given to us the point of salvation, the time that we are saved. Whenever anyone puts their faith or trust in Christ, some teach, well, after that, then you need to pray for the Holy Spirit. No, you don't. If you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. The Bible does not teach that it's a secondary blessing, as some teach, that somehow you can get more of God than you already have. I mean, if you look at that text, it's, it's pretty clear that that's a lot that God has given us because God has... God's love has been poured into our hearts. We used to sing a a song, a little chorus, more love, more power, more of you in my life. I mean, it's a nice little song, but theologically it's not correct. You can't have more of the love of God than you already have. The problem is we don't utilize what we have. He wants us to utilize what we have. Charles Wesley put it this way, amazing love, how can it be? that thou, my God, should die for me. 
Let the Spirit of God remind you this week how much God the Father loves you. Because that's really what, what it boils down to. When I was a youth pastor, we used to sing a song. I got peace like a river. I got joy like a fountain. I got love like an ocean in my soul. Right? There's only one place you can find those things. There's only one faith place you can find peace and joy and love. is when you come to Christ. The moment you say yes to Jesus, I guarantee you the Holy Spirit will enter your heart and he begins to pour out the love of God in your life like you've never experienced. He turns on the spigot and outflows the love of God, not just in little dribbles or drops, but in a mighty rushing torrent. I want to ask you this morning, are you feeling unloved? Are you feeling used? Are you feeling rejected? Are you feeling cheated? Are you feeling as if Maybe somehow you just don't quite measure up. Do you ever wonder if you'll ever truly be loved by anyone? Well, welcome to the human race. We've all been there. We've all felt those things. We all feel that way occasionally still. But you know what? I'm delighted to tell you there's someone who will never, ever disappoint you. His love is like a river, like a fountain, like an ocean. And it's available to you right now. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can take these words and apply them to our hearts. And Father, we thank you that we have been justified by faith, and because of that, we have peace with God, and we have access to God. We have a grace in which we stand, and we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God that one day we will share in heaven. And Lord, that we can even rejoice, that we can exalt in our present day sufferings because we know that you're, you're changing us. You're causing us to endure so that we could have that proven character. And out of that character comes hope. Hope that won't disappoint because you've given us the Holy Spirit which sheds the love of God abroad in our heart. And so, Father, we pray this morning, if there's any here who is yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, who is yet to taste of the heavenly gift that you offer through Christ, they first have to acknowledge their own sin, their need of a Savior. But after they acknowledge that, they don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops. They don't have to light a candle. They don't have to go in a little box and tell their sins to everybody. They simply come to you. And they come to you and they say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's nowhere else I can go. There's only one name under heaven whereby we can be saved, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that you would draw their hearts close to you. You would cause them to repent of their sin, turn to Christ, trust in you for their salvation. And Lord, as believers, I pray that we would not forget that you're doing a work in us, even though sometimes it's difficult, sometimes it's not pleasant, sometimes it's hard. But Lord, you are doing this work because you love us and you're making us ready for the one day that we will stand in your presence in heaven, in glory, and we'll be there forever. This is just a blip on the radar screen. I pray that we would understand that and that we would adjust our priorities 
as a result of understanding. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.